everyone, and welcome to the Bloke and the Bird show. Um, coming, honestly, I don't know when this is going to get posted this week. Maybe Wednesday? We're recording it Monday. We were going to rep- record Sunday, but once again, somebody was not feeling well. This time it was not me. No, this time it was me. But that pushed us to Monday. Um, and normally I go and edit the show the next day. But instead, we have the high school band banquet on Tuesday. So I'm not sure. It's not actually a banquet. It's just an award ceremony. Award ceremony. ceremony. It's not a banquet. You're correct. It has not been a banquet because we're in COVID times. In these trying times, we don't get to have the dessert potluck that we normally would have. So, alas. Good. They always make me feel so awkward whenever I'm doing those sorts of things. Well, that's because you have bad luck with the pots. I mean, well, it may also just be my inner awkwardness too. Yes, yes, truthfully, yes. <clears throat> anyway, so. so ideally midweek, and and you may be hearing this several days after we've recorded it because. So basically, anything that we say is a fact today is subject to change between the time we record it. And the time it gets posted. Maybe. So, or, or, or is that just the standard disclaimer at this point? Oh, we need to have a forward-looking no respon- We have no responsibility. If you listen to this show days, months, or weeks afterwards, and therefore things that we have said are no longer fully accurate. It's a forward-looking <coughs> statement. Got it. Or backwards-looking no, I statement. I we're not supposed to make forward-looking statements. No. It's your statement against making forward-looking statements. No, 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 no. I sit through enough Salesforce um, uh, presentations, and they always say, this is our forward-looking statement. Do not make any of your buying decisions based on features that are planned to be released and have not yet been released. We just failed on making forward-looking decisions. We do predictions in which we look forward. (laughs) Yeah, but we're not basing our decisions and our, our buying decisions our buying around decisions on said forward-looking statements. We're just trying to predict the future in a fun and amusing way. Anyway. Speaking of predicting the future. Because as it stands right now, we can't predict the future of the race that's going to happen right after Monaco. Well, so originally it was supposed to be Montreal. Correct. Montreal was canceled. And the main reason that they canceled it wasn't because of rising COVID numbers, but because of the requirements from the Canadian government around quarantines. Okay. So the Canadian government said, if you come to Canada um, and you're coming from Europe, you have to quarantine for two weeks before you can be allowed into the general population. And the Canadian government refused to extend an exemption to Formula One. Even if they stayed in their own bubble. Correct. And did that does that also apply to vaccinated people? Apparently it does. Wow. At least that's that's my understanding. But it was because Formula or, or because the Canadian government wasn't willing to exempt at least enough people, even if it wasn't just that everyone wasn't fully vaccinated at this point, 
they were not willing to go and extend that exemption around quarantines that Formula One said, all right, fine, this isn't going to work. We'll extend the contract for Canada for two years, but we're not coming this year. Instead, we're going to Turkey. Correct. And that was the plan. Until, um, well, actually, it's going to be effective on May 12th. The British government has placed Turkey on their red list. All right, so refresh the memories of those of us who are not up on the COVID restrictions for the UK. What does the red list mean? So the UK's government, the UK government's red list for nations that, for travelers coming from nations that are on the red list, when you enter the UK, you have to go into quarantine for two weeks. That's why there was the big delay as we went, when Formula One left um, Bahrain to their next race was because of the quarantines. Bahrain was on a two-week, was on the red list. Portugal was also on the red list, which is why Formula One's got some concerns right now. So they were able to get around it to some extent by saying, okay, we're going to Spain. Folks are going to stay in Europe for an extra week until we can clear them and send them back. But now, if Formula One goes to Turkey, that means that we're now extending for some of these engineers and some of these mechanics and some of these team personnel. They're going to be on the road consistently in and out of quarantine between races for six straight weeks. Mm. So, of course, the teams are having a little bit of heartache with that. I can imagine. Yeah. So we, at this point, don't know what's going to happen with the Turkish Grand Prix. I guess Formula One is trying to get an exemption. Okay. Um, because, you know, they got the exemptions in the past. You know, last year they were able to do it. But this year so far, the British government has not been inclined to grant them exemptions. Interesting. <clears throat> Interesting. Any idea as to why they won't be granting exemptions? Because this year, COVID hasn't been hitting as hard as it did last year. And we also have vaccinations as well. I think they're really worried about the variants, um, especially with what's going on in India right now. And the vaccination rates. What we don't know is how many people in the Formula One paddock have been fully vaccinated. We know some are. We know some of the teams took the Bahrain government up on their offer to get vaccinated, but not everybody did. So, all right. So we got a nice little question mark next to Turkey. So stay tuned there and we'll see what happens. Um, Stefano Domenicali also says that he is encouraging teams um, to start looking for some American drivers. I have a guy that they should talk to. Um, that guy they probably won't talk to in my understanding from the last time that I spoke to him. He has absolutely no intention of returning to Formula One. Are we talking about the same guy? Because this one's never driven in Formula One. Oh. I thought you were talking about Alexander Rossi. No, 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 no. He's doing really well in Indy. I can't imagine that he would... That's why I said he has no intention of leaving IndyCar at this point. No, but I know of a fabulous junior driver that would probably welcome an opportunity to test with Formula One. 
test, yes. The challenge with Robert is that I don't believe he's been competing in series that make him eligible for a super license. Mm. That's going to be the challenge with him. I think I could be a Formula One driver. I even wrote super on my driver's license. (laughs) So that should totally mean that it's a super license now. Um. I think that you need to be further out than five months from an accident. Well, I don't talk about that. I I was going to say that, you know, we've both ridden in a car that you were driving. And while you have gotten safer from the way I've seen how you handle a car, if you were driving a car at race speeds you would make pastor maldonado look good wait really whoa now i will that's not a compliment darn i will say that our local police officer happened to pass him one day and said that he drove like a little old man is that a good thing when you're on city streets and your mama's worried about you, yes, it's a very good thing. When you're driving in a Formula One, we're going fast and accurately is a is a key skill set. Not so much a good thing. It's kind of like mom would really love to drive Formula One, but I don't like to go fast. But I love to go fast. Have you seen me on like a highway? I'm legendary. This is not something you should brag about. <laughs> Why? So anyway. Moving on. So where this came from was Wall Street analysts. in, in the, Because remember, Formula One is technically a publicly traded organization. So they have their analyst calls. Wall Street analysts um, in a call with Stefano asked him if the the sport thought it was important with Formula One returning to, well, not really returning, but going to Miami, if Formula One thought it was important to have an American on the grid and if they were making efforts to do that. So what Stefano said was, with regard to Miami with the American drivers, it is important. The answer for me is very clear. It's yes. You know we are working with teams trying to understand what is really the possibility for American drivers to come to the attention of F1 teams in the short term. This could be, I don't see that being very pragmatic and realistic, coming in the next two or three years, but maybe after, yes. I know that there are teams watching other good drivers, and that if they're ready, will be a big boost for the American fans. Because as we know, faces, drivers, they put enthusiasm, passion, that people want to see these guys. And therefore, the hope is that we have, is that very, very soon, we have American drivers competing against all the others in the F1 championship. Wow, his English... It was some pretty word salad there. Was weird. It, it, it was some pretty word salad there. I wasn't sure if it was your poor reading comprehension or his <clears throat> poor English. Oh no, this was him. So says you. So he also says that um, there will be a big PR push... Uh, with Monaco in Miami to promote Formula One. They plan on showing the Monaco Grand Prix this year at the Hard Rock Stadium. 
Okay. Now, I don't know who's going to go to the Hard Rock Stadium to watch, but they plan on pushing it and encouraging fans. Actually, I, I bet what they're going to do is, is it's going to be, you know, the F1 Festival Miami thing. But the difference is, you know, Monaco starts at, what is it, 8 a.m. Eastern time? <laughs> well, there is that. Um, I wonder if they'll have some Formula One car. Well, it wasn't a matter of some Formula One car. It was that they had former Formula... Well, they're they're not really Formula. They were actual Formula One cars. But they were being driven by not a Formula One driver. (laughs) That was it. It That's what it was. It's a not a Formula One driver. not a Formula One driver. Are you talking about the F1 fan experience that wasn't much of a fan experience? Oh, it was an experience. It just wasn't a great one. Yeah. There, there, there was in fact an experience. Well, yeah, there was the simulator that had a very long line. There was the ti- the pit stop challenge, where you too could change a tire. Whoa! Let me guess, it had a very long line to it. It did with no well, merchandise. Well, but but those pit stop challenge things, they're actually very popular. Mm-hmm. They really are, and and. Ferrari has one at the form at, at their museum in Maranello. Oh, do they? Williams has one in their um, visitor center. They actually they do it as corporate team building mm-hmm. that you can come in with your team and among other things you participate in in the tire challenge, changing challenge. Nice. So just saying. I don't think I'm going to get the village to do that as our team building exercise. Um, not if you have to go to Grove. Probably not. It's I mean, not in the budget. If you could convince them to come here for nothing. <laughs> That's in our budget. Yeah. So, yeah. Now, do you remember when we started the season and we talked about the design of the cars and there was the question about Williams and their decision to go with peaky downforce. Yes. Oh, the ones that wasn't good in the wind, but was good in a- anything else. Right. As long as it wasn't windy and it wasn't like super hot, that the car should perform fairly well. But if it was hot and if it was windy, they were going to struggle. And if it was hot and windy, it was right out. Yeah. And, and George Russell saying it. Yeah, you know, this isn't as bad as it sounds. Uh-huh. This is, you know, it, it's it's kind of, it, it just means that in some tracks we're not going to perform as well and others we're going to do pretty good at because of the the downforce suits it and, and this, this suits the tracks. Okay. So that's what he said. It was a calculated decision, they said. Yes, it was a calculated decision to do this. Well, Williams team principal Simon Roberts, which you may have noticed if you watched the race this past weekend, um, we heard a lot from him. Mm-hmm. It was the first that we heard from Williams in quite a long time. Well, Simon Roberts actually said that, yeah, we didn't plan on doing this. Oh. This was not what we were trying to accomplish when we redesigned the car. He actually says that this is um, a result of the rule change and the efforts that they made to try and recover the downforce that was lost. Oh. So what they did was they built a car that sometimes it recovers the downforce really well when it's not windy. And when it is windy, ah, it's even worse. Oh. So out of curiosity, we've had four races. 
Mm-hmm. They've talked about wind at how many of these four races? Just about every one of them. Every one of them. <laughs> Just about every one of them. So possibly. Peaky downforce wasn't the way to go. It was uh, It was not the, the fan car of this year. <laughs> no. The seemingly odd choice that was brilliant. This was just not brilliant. So we have last, yeah, it was last week. We mentioned how Red Bull was ramping up their engine development efforts in light of Honda pulling out of the sport, but kind of not really pulling out of the sport because they're still maintaining their their own development efforts to support Red Bull, which I don't get how that's fully going to work. So Red Bull's going to run a badged, a Red Bull badged Honda engine with their own well, evolution. Kind of. At least the base unit is going to be what Honda originally developed. But what we also know is that Red Bull has started construction on an actual engine development and manufacturing facility at the plant in Milton Kynes. Okay. Um, I mean, full on, this is going to be a brand new facility that they are building. So last week, and didn't didn't talk about it because it was kind of minor, Red Bull announced that they had signed a former senior Mercedes high-performance powertrain engineer to come lead up their new engine development program, which... Okay, yeah, the, these things happen. We'd never heard of this guy, so I didn't worry about it. And then word came out about three days later that actually Red Bull signed five more folks from Mercedes high-performance powertrains. And then the day after that, word came out that another five folks from Mercedes high-performance powertrains got signed by Red Bull. Overall, they have so far poached 10 different fairly senior engineers from Mercedes uh, engine development group. So when is Mercedes going to send the CND over to Red Bull to stop poaching their peoples? So Total Wolf says that actually Red Bull approached a hundred of their engineers. Whoa. Yeah. Now, Christian Horner and... and, and what did he, he do? Go to LinkedIn and go Mercedes engineer? Yes. <gasps> that was some of it. The, the other thing that he pointed out is that, you know, there is a lot of engineering expertise within that Oxford Valley region. Mm-hmm. And, and we know this. The reality is, though, there's not a lot of places to go if you have that level of expertise and experience. Because the only, or, the only team, the only constructor that is building engines in England today is Mercedes. Right. Ferrari's building down in in Marinello. And Renault, well, now Alpine, is building in Viri. They're not building their engines in Enstone. So Viri, France. So if you're looking for, say, a new challenge or just, a change of pace or to move to another organization or to move up or something like that and you work for Mercedes and you don't really want to move 
this Red Bull Venture is really the only other game in town. Yeah. And that's what appears to be luring a lot of folks over. You're talking 20, 30 kilometers down the road, and you can go work for Red Bull over at Milton Kynes. And possibly level up because you've been waiting for somebody yep. to leave and they're not going to leave to get a promotion. I mean, you get it. You get all of those things. I mean, why you would leave Mercedes to go to Red Bull, I don't know. But that's, you know, that's because I'm pro Mercedes and anti Red Bull. But, but if you look at it from a performance perspective right now, Mercedes, yes, without a doubt, is at the top of their game, and it doesn't look like anything, at least from an engine perspective, is going to knock them off that ledge. However, right now, it looks like if anybody was going to do it, it's Red Bull. Well, and if you're if you're a designer, if you're an engine manufacturer, the other thought here is Mercedes has perfected for lack of a better way of saying it perfected their engine Mm -hmm. the gains that they're gonna make are a very minute and probably like the the hours to gain are gonna be very different but when you talk about a red bull that really it can only move forward Mm -hmm. your opportunities to have a win are probably greater at and I don't mean a race win necessarily, but it's just a performance gain, a gain performance and... gain mm-hmm. um, are greater at Red Bull. I could see that. I could see somebody coming in and saying, I can make this better and get to be a part of making that better. Um, being a draw as opposed to, there's got to be a feeling at some point when you've been on the top for so long at Mercedes, it's more about, yes, they're pushing to try to make it better, but there's also a don't screw it up. Yeah. yeah. There's that. And, and I think the other thing that may be at play here and it, that's having an impact is the cost cap mm-hmm. and budgets. And, you know, Mercedes has Mercedes has already invested a lot of money into that power plant. And they may be looking at other areas now to invest the money under the cost cap where Red Bull is looking at, you know, we need to develop an an engine and we're going to go and we're going to leverage the the budget that way. Now, Toto Wolf has also said besides saying that, you know, this is kind of inevitable. He 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 knew that as Red Bull was ramping up, they were going to start looking there for talent because it's in the backyard. Mm-hmm. It's easy, the easiest place to go to get Formula 1 talent that's experienced and you know, has a proven record. And again, it's in the backyard. You don't have to move. Exactly. And that matters. Um, but the other thing that he said is, you know, in a way, this is kind of an opportunity for us too. Because all of those vacancies are now areas that we can grow people. And we can give some of these junior personnel who have not had the opportunity, the ability to grow and develop in new roles. And it frees up headcount to do that. Well, also keep in mind, if you're poaching senior people, the person backfilling that job may not make what the senior person made. Yeah, there's that Which gives them room in their cost cap. Yeah, there's that too. And if they had anybody that was a particular, you know, 
drain on the the morale or something like that. It was like eh, Red Bull's Red Bull's looking. Yeah. So, I mean, it could be good for everybody. So while we're on the topic of Mercedes, and the story came out middle of the week in the UK press, unsubstantiated reports that Mercedes was planning on releasing Valtteri Bottas midway through the season. That's the Red Bull move, not a Mercedes move. And that was that was Valtteri's response to this is, you know, Mercedes isn't known for for dropping drivers in the middle of the season. That's another team's mm-hmm. method. Um so so that was his response to this. Um Toto Wolf w- was pushed on this in, in the lead up to this weekend's race. And uh, his response w- was a bit more emphatic that this was ridiculous. And, and the only way that Valtteri would not be in the car throughout the entire season is if he got the flu. Mm. But he is very insistent that this is their driver lineup. They do not change drivers in the middle of the season. There is no reason to change drivers in the middle of the season. This came this came from nowhere and it was unsubstantiated. So it's only if he gets the flu. If he gets the coronavirus, he's still driving? Is that the plan right there? <laughs> coronavirus is a form of the flu, so that's probably going to keep him out of the car too. Oh. And even still, he was using hyperbole to make it clear that the only way Valtteri was not going to drive for them is if he got sick, not because they were going to let him go. You know hyperbole, right? Extreme exaggeration. Thank you. You are good at it, right? Somewhat, not really. Uh Uh-huh. So, during the... and, and, And I want to make it clear, this was not a special meeting. But during the normal race weekend get-together that the team principals have with Michael Massey and other officials with the FIA, um, track limits was a topic of discussion. Please tell me that it was no more than, yes, we should have them. Yes, your drivers should obey them. Well, the, the main point of topic and frustration that they expressed, I agree with. So what they were complaining about, what what the big thing that they were pushing against the FIA about was the fact that they're not consistent across the board. And where they were saying that they were not consistent wasn't the fact that, well, sometimes we enforce it and sometimes we don't. It was the fact that, you know, at some tracks, they only enforce track limits on three or four corners. But on the other corners on a track, it's okay. They don't care. And their frustration was over the fact that if you're going to say that there's track limits, make it apply to the whole track. Don't turn around and say, well, we're only going to look at it in turns five, six, and seven. But on turn one, if you're running out, ah, no problem. (laughs) Put your track limits in place and say they're in place and stop playing games. And don't change them partway through through the weekend and go, well, you know, originally we weren't looking at turn four, but now that it's Saturday morning, we're going to go and enforce track limits on that too. So, the And ra- I think that's a valid complaint. The race steward's point, the FIA's point, 
is that what they are trying to do is say, we're going to look at the track Mm -hmm. and choose those corners because there's 20 something corners on the track. We have three stewards and you want everybody to monitor track limits across the entire track. What we're going to tell you is that there are these seven corners that if you cut the corner or exceed the track limits, you're going to gain an advantage. It, That's the ter- problem. Turn one, you're going to lose time. So you're not really going to cut turn one. That's why we're not watching it. We're watching these. We're already telling you that we're watching these because there's where your advantage can come from. I mean, I don't know. There's a part of me that says, if you've already determined that there are five corners they can get an advantage of, why do you bother telling the drivers what five there are anyway? Just tell them you're enforcing track limits and move on with your life. You still only have to look at those five corners because at but, the end of the day, it's exceed want... track limits and gain an advantage. But but what you don't want to turn around and do is go, well, you know, we're enforcing track limits and, and they're only calling penalties on four, five, and six for only for the team to go, yeah, but... This driver kept exceeding track limits at turn two. And they'll go, but he didn't get an immaterial advantage, therefore we didn't. But that's where you then end up with the same argument they have now. Either you have track limits or you don't have track limits. Don't go and piecemeal them across. Um, The other thing that when I heard it and thought about it, I was like, well, okay, there's a valid point here too. So Christian Horner pointed out the fact that, you know, when it comes to track limits and these cars and the design of these cars, that reminder that visibility in these cars is not great. And when these cars are getting close to the edge, depending on where that edge is, it's not always possible for the driver to see where that is. And because of the changes that have been made in the tracks over the last couple of years, the drivers don't necessarily get any feedback when they've approached the edge. So, so think about it this way. There's not a rumble strip. Yeah, the, those, those rumble strips, the, those ridged curbs, the gravel, the, the sleeping policeman, all of those things, Formula One's been pulling that out over the last couple of years. Because they were another safety problem. Well, see, and, and I got to wonder about at least the red and white curbs. Those... Were they that much of a safe? I mean, I get it. When when it's wet conditions, the water puddles in there, and that's an issue. But when it's a dry condition, is it that much of a safety issue if there is some ridging there so that the drivers feel it? I don't know. I don't have an answer there. I know the sausage curbs were causing the tires to explode. No, um, sausage curbs were launching the cars into the air. Was that the launch? That was cars? that was airborne cars. Where we were seeing the tires explode, and it was specifically happening in Silverstone, is it was not just the ridges, but it was the fact that the drivers were going beyond the ridges and catching the lip mm-hmm. that was tearing up the inside sidewall of the tire. Yeah. Now. I don't typically have a problem with gravel. Gravel's actually pretty nice and safe. The problem is it does tend to disable the car. And that's the other There's issue. There's your penalty. Right. But but the other issue with gravel, and it's less of a Formula One issue, but in these multi-purpose tracks 
where MotoGP races, they can't, gravel's bad. Yeah. Well, gravel does tend to embed itself into the riders who fall. Well, there's that, but also with a motorcycle, gravel kind of makes it stop really fast. And And, and the problem is the bike stops, driver doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's a bit of a problem. (laughs) Someone needs to invent seatbelts for motorcycles. Yeah, you don't want that either because then they'll be attached to the thing that's going head yes, over. But at least the seatbelt will save lives because that's what seatbelts do. And motorcycles different. Oh. So yeah, I mean it, it's a valid point. They got to do. They, they got to do it better. I think that's I the think thing. That's is the they've got to figure it. out doing it better. So qualifying in Spain, Sergio Perez was fairly dismal well he was but they kept talking that he so this is where i got confused okay i know they talked about him not feeling well Mm -hmm. and they talked about him having a shoulder issue and then he said he was nauseous was he nauseous from the pain that's what's not clear so sergio did say that he wasn't 100 percent. he wasn't feeling well and the shoulder was bothering him now it may have been the pain that was that was making him nauseous, but overall he was not feeling well. And he said it got worse and worse as Quali developed and he struggled more with it. Um, obviously he was back to form, but again, put him out of position and that had an overall impact. And it does now sound like, and given that this is Red Bull, you got to be concerned about it, but it does now sound like Red Bull is getting a little frustrated. Christian Horner saying that they really need to get Sergio up into the position where he is supporting Max. Mm-hmm. And yeah, they're right. Um, but we're four races in and they're already making these comments. Well, we're four races in, they're already making these comments and he was the last driver selected. Like he finished the season without a seat, remember? Just about. So, I mean, there's all of those pieces of how much time has he had in a Red Bull to understand for a car that has been built and designed around Max. Not just built and designed around Max. And and this is what I think we're seeing with all the new drivers. And Carlos Sainz, in a way, we, we kind of made fun of him about it. But, but I think he's proving that it's kind of right is we're seeing pretty much all of the drivers who are brand new in their teams struggle are struggling Mm -hmm. and they're struggling for a lot of reasons and the lack of testing that we had this year has certainly had an impact but adjusting to the performance of these new cars the environment in these teams i mean red bull is very different an organization from Racing Point and from anybody else on the grid. And same thing, Ferrari going from McLaren to Ferrari, it, it's a fairly big adjustment we're seeing. And we're seeing that just about all of those drivers are struggling to make that adjustment. Exactly. And you got to add to it that Sergio didn't come up through the Young Driver program. So mm-hmm. where anybody else that gets into in the recent history, gets into a Red Bull seat, they've at least been indoctrinated into the Red Bull way. 
because that permeates through the Young Driver program. The, the Red Bull way they've spent weekends in the garage seeing how the garage functions and mm-hmm. how they operate, and yet he hasn't gotten any of that. Yeah, so he is as I mean, he is as new to their program as Carlos Sainz is to Ferrari, as Ricardo is to McLaren, mm-hmm. as Vettel. I mean, Vettel's not a slouch driver, and he's struggling at Aston Martin. Yeah, but what I'm not clear on at this point is how much is that Vettel and how much is that Aston Martin. Well, I can't tell yet because they're not the the, the cars are not doing great. But yeah, it, it is kind of scary that Lance has been out qualifying, and that's 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 where I was going with finishing it. Vettel, and that's where I was going with it. it. It doesn't mean that Aston Martin. You know, you can't compare it to another team right now. You can only compare them, the drivers, to each other. And Vettel is struggling against a stroll. I mean, let's put that in perspective. A kid whose dad had to buy him an F1 team just so that he could actually be an F1. Mm -hmm. Now, what we don't know in that perspective also is we we do know that, that Seb likes a car set up in a very specific way. And we do not know if the Aston has been has been conducive to getting that set up for Seb so far. Well, and that's true too. And that may be some of the issue as well. But we also know that that Mercedes engine handles and applies power very differently. We're hearing that from Daniel Ricciardo. That's been a big adjustment is how that Mercedes engine puts down power. Exactly. So, other things going on. Qualifying, coming out of qualifying. Yuki Sonoda had a very, very rough qualifying. Yes. And um, was rather angry and rather frustrated at how it went. To the point that he went to the media post-qualifying and basically claimed that the team was setting up um, Pierre Gasly's car completely differently and it Gasly had um a car that was set up to perform better and that mm. possibly he was being handicapped okay that especially when you're on your fourth race is often not considered to be a career enhancing maneuver i can imagine so our understanding is that Franz Toast does not take kindly to such behavior. Mm. Um, word is that there were some behind-the-scenes conversations. And the next day before the race, Yuki was in the garage um, trying to make amends with all the mechanics ah. and the rest of the team. And he issued an apology through his social media channels and... Uh, and he has acknowledged that he was very frustrated. But, yeah, that's the thing. When when you're four races into your Formula One career, <laughs> maybe going out to the media and telling the media that you think the team is sabotaging your car, probably not a good plan. No. No. It, that's not a, a good thing. It definitely came across as very... Um, Poor sportsman. Yeah. Yeah. Now, we do know that Yuki is 
fairly enthusiastic. Mm-hmm. It's one of the things folks like about him is that he is enthusiastic. He is willing to throw it all out there. You know, as he said after race one with his battle with, with uh, Fernando Alonso, that, you know, he was willing to go and, and toss his car into that corner because, well, he's the rookie and Fernando's the experienced one. And <laughs> it's what rookies do. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta like him for that you gotta like him for that i mean I, I'll, I'll grant he was frustrated and he's emotional and there's something likable about that um but you do have to temper it you, you still gotta be a company guy you gotta yeah now you don't sell your team out i, I think it's gonna be worth watching him Um, because especially after this weekend, this is going to be where either we see the start of Yuki Tsunoda, the next great Formula One driver with his daring and his bravery and all of that, or we are going to see Yuki Tsunoda, the next punchline crash monster. Exactly. So yeah, I, I think it's going to go one way or the other. Uh, that's typically the only choices you got. Well, no. You you can be that middle-of-the-road, mid-pack kind of driver. that You know, just the, the journeyman who, if the opportunities pop up, you, you know, you get the chance. But, yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, we'll, we'll watch his career and see what happens. But he probably needs to be more supportive of his team. So also, you know, in line with four races in Formula One doesn't make you an expert in Formula One racing. We have Nikita, we say no to Mazepin. <laughs> we say no. Yes. I thought it was Mazepin. You, you can do that too. Anything of, you know, we really don't like him. But um, Mr. Mazepin, with his Four races of Formula One experience. He says that he doesn't like Formula One qualifying's no overtaking etiquette rule. That, uh, you know, if you are, it's that gentleman's agreement about the qualifying car order. Um, He says that that doesn't work. And and that we, we shouldn't be doing it. It's not realistic. Four races. Now, this is all after he got. Well, let, let's face it. It was a fairly meaningless penalty. Um, but he got a penalty in Q1, because he didn't get anywhere else, for impeding Lando Norris when there was that big bunch-up over at the uh, uh, the chicane. Mm-hmm. Um, he got the penalty for impeding because he didn't get out of the way. Because, as he said, he had a choice. Either he could get out of the way, which would probably ruin his prep for his own fast lap, or he could take off. And pass people. Mm. So that's what he did. But because he's in a slower car, he impeded Lando Norris. Ugh. Instead of getting out of the way. So he got, what was it, a three pl- grid place penalty. But he was already last, so he just yeah. stayed more last. Fairly meaningless. Kind of like what happened previous race where, you know, they gave him a five second penalty for ignoring blue flags when he was already in last place. But... 
didn't he also get a point on his license? He he did. So so he now has two penalty points. Um. So long way to go before he could be black flagged. But uh, yeah. But he's well on his way. Well on his way to pissing off the rest of the paddock and the rest of the grid. Because they don't like him. Well, yeah. But also, we mentioned the fact that he has he struggles with the color blue. Um, yeah. He, you so know, the blue flag thing. At some point, when you tick off Toto Wolf, who is pretty even keeled, Enough that he makes the call to Michael Massey? So for the first time ever, we heard a call being made between a team's pit wall and race control. Mm-hmm. And actually, it, it seems like it was a one-way call. So as a reminder, we got the broadcast of Toto Wolf. Actually, it was on lap 26. Toto Wolf on the radio to Michael Massey at race control. Michael Blue Flags. Michael, this guy makes us lose the position. Mm-hmm. We've never heard that. That is a new thing. Yeah. Everybody so, was really excited about it. Yeah. So this actually it came out of, and, and I'm not sure Michael Mossy calls this an innovation. I'm not sure it's really an innovation. But Michael Mossy says that, yeah, this is a new thing that, that the FIA has worked together with F1. It came th- about through a discussion with the F1 commission last year so that viewers could hear part of the broadcast of the communications between the pit wall and the teams because it happens fairly regularly. There is some developments that happen there. Um, They did let the teams know that as part of doing this that their messages could be broadcast, and this time it actually was. Okay. Now, what he also said was that for Toto Wolf to do while Toto Wolf has the ability to do this, for Toto Wolf to radio him for anything, is extremely rare. Well, I can imagine. Toto is so even-keeled. True. I mean, he's not... But we have heard more from Toto this year on the radio. Mm-hmm. Now, that said, by the way, coming out of Portugal, Toto has said that he's thinking about... He, he's reconsidering his messages to Valtteri. Because as you'll recall, he radioed to Valtteri to, you know keep him motivated and keeping him excited that Valtteri was the fastest person on the track and to keep pushing. The problem is right after he did that, Valtteri's performance flatlined. Oh, that's not a good thing. Yeah, and now he's like, I don't know if I'm going to radio Valtteri nearly as much now. Okay. But that was, as you'll recall, that was because Valtteri had expressed complaints that he didn't think that Toto was giving him the same level of support that Lewis got. So Toto would radio him. Okay. Well. Now he might not do that. Well, you know, Valtteri, if you're going to get what you asked for, you need to continue to perform. Yeah. <laughs> so Nikita has, has been spoken. He's been asked in the media about this. Which, by the way, and I can't figure out what idiot did this. So in the results of this week's Driver of the Week voting, Nikita Mazepin was third. Who did that? <laughs> Who did that? Why did you do that? Daddy Mazepin? Well, that's about the best that I can think of is that maybe the Russian troll farms were turned loose here. Because otherwise, why? Or is it just to make an utter mockery of the driver of the day? 
It's probably making another mock- mockery of driver of the day. So Mazepin, after uh, his penalty for holding up Sergio Perez during Portugal and again uh, holding up Hamilton in Spain, uh, he said that he's still learning how to respond to the blue flags. He says, I was dealing with these blue flags in Imola for the first time in my life. I previously never had a blue flag on a consistent basis. So it's just a matter of learning, just the same as driving. It took me about five, seven years to learn proper driving. And it's going to take me hopefully a few race race weekends only to learn about blue flags. Okay, allow Dr. David Blishkin over here to come in here and uh, put it to you this way. Doctor, huh? <laughs> yes. It was written in Sharpie. <laughs> Esquire? <laughs> yes, thank you. So the, Bill and Ted. In Mazepin's Formula 2 career, the lowest place that he has ever finished would be 18th. Mm-hmm. There's 22 cars that race in Formula 2. So you're saying he was probably in blue flag land even back then? Yes, so he has this excuse here means nothing when he's been in, has blue flag seen blue flags before. Exactly. So maybe they use a different color flag in Formula Two. Maybe it's not blue. No, it's blue. Oh, well, standard so- flags, standard colors. Well, I mean, I'm trying for him, but seriously, I took a look at his past. He finished second one time in Formula 2. That was his second year in Formula 2. But there's like a bunch of stuff that he was like 18th, 20th, you know. 22nd, there's one, I think, one season that he did not finish. Didn't even finish the season. I think he's seen some blue flags before. Yeah. So this weekend... Nikita was 19th. So once again, a last place finish. Well, 19th because the 20th was a DNF. It was. The thing that really struck me, though, so and, and unfortunately, it's hard to find it. It was only because I caught it at the end of the race and the standings um, as the final lap was going on. So if you look at the final standings, all it will show you is that he was two laps down. Mm-hmm. However... What we saw at the end of the race in the gaps that were posted was that Nikita wasn't just two laps down. He was 30 seconds behind his teammate. Yeah. Two laps down. Exactly. Not two laps down from Schumacher, but two laps down from the leader and 30 seconds behind Schumacher. And, I mean, Schumacher was way back there, too. He, He was, too. Um, I mean, Alonzo was in 17th and was a lap down. Mm-hmm. And Schumacher in 18th. So. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, his Ford race experience does not mean he should start trying to remake Formula One. But, I mean, if there was any doubt, and, and I'm sorry, you cannot write this off to the car at this point. Mm-mm. But if there was any doubt that Nikita Mazepin... The only thing that is keeping him in Formula One is daddy's money. Here you go. I mean... Four races in. If we were going to compare, you know, wealthy playboys in Formula One, they're because of daddy. 
Stroll at least is doing something. He's doing something, and honestly, I think we're kind of closing in where I can acknowledge that, you know, Stroll probably the modern-day equivalent of Peter Revson. Okay. And Peter Revson, yes, he bought his way into Formula One, and he bought his way to stay into Formula One, but he had some fairly decent finishes and some respectable performances until his fatal accident. Mm -hmm. But Formula One was a different place at that time. Yeah, and I think that... I, I think Stroll is starting to show that he's got some skills. Some skills. Yeah. Um, but... Still Nick, think there are better pl- people to have in Formula One than him, but still, yeah. He he he, he is more deserving of his seat at this point than Nikita Mazepin. Exactly. So, the bizarre incident that happened during this race... Mm-hmm. Um, was that pit stop under the safety car condition for Antonio Giovinazzi, where they were also they had the tires set up for him and ready to go, and all of a sudden there was that crazy scramble, and we saw the ma- the mechanic punching the tire. Mm-hmm. So what we saw was he realized the tire was deflated. It was not as we thought a puncture, which would have been bizarre in its own right. What actually apparently happened in in the investigation was the tire valve failed. We don't know if it was damage to the valve or or what, but the valve failed, and as a result, the tire wasn't holding pressure. And so we just know that it failed. We don't know if they hit the tire valve, pulling it out of blankets, and... We don't know. Um, What Motorsport says is a tire valve failure... From an operational issue. Oh, so maybe putting it on the rim or something. Yeah, and and, and that we don't know. Um, but that's what it was. It really odd failure. I don't think we've ever seen anything like that where team has lined up for a pit stop and then had to reject a tire, basically. What I will say that I found very interesting in the commentary for that was I believe it was Martin Brundle who, A, said, I've never seen this before, which mm-hmm. is always fun. But he complimented the tire guy on... For catching. For catching it because he's like, normally we would... And so they know that they put flat tires on cars before, but he's like, normally you'd catch it at the end of the pit lane or you'd catch mm-hmm. it a, a lap or so down and then it, you'd be stuck. He says way to go that guy caught it putting it on the car save the race for for giovanazzi i mean he should get a handshake at at very least so i believe as we were doing some pre-show prep which i know is stunning because we don't actually believe in it you had mentioned that charles leclerc had had um was having a communication issue with his pit wall. Well, it wasn't so much of a communication issue. It was more that his pit wall was constantly giving him information that he didn't need. He didn't need or wanted different information? Um, Well, he didn't really need because he was constantly getting information about what Ricardo was doing in his times when in reality he needed to know what Botus was doing. 
because whether or not Botus what when Botus was in front of him, how he should be matching his pace to Botus's, and then when Botus was behind him, how he should try and push harder. So Leclerc was trying to race Botus, but his team kept trying to make him race Ricardo. Yeah. And he blames that for why he could not manage to sneak in a podium finish. Wow. I think that may be a little optimistic, but I can understand the frustration with the team not feeding him the information he wanted. Yeah. Now, we also don't know if there was the radio call back that said, not Ricardo Botas, not Ricardo Botas. But, you know, that that's the other piece of the puzzle. But wait, there's more. There's a bonus boy story? So, Ferrari's Laurent Mekis, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Yeah, Laurent Mekis. Um, has said that their strong qualifying um, ha- makes them think that they might be third in the pecking order. Oh, so they think that they've, they've, they're coming back. They think that they're coming back, but only during qualifying. They're still trying to figure out race pace, but they feel like their qualifying pace is third in the pecking order. I, you know, I I think that's going to be an interesting part of the championship to watch that third place Mm, position. Best of the rest. Yeah. Between McLaren and Ferrari, I think it's going to be very interesting to see what happens there. It was, it's always been very interesting to watch that best, best of the rest sort of thing, even last year. Yeah. Yeah. But McLaren fighting with Ferrari is pretty impressive right now. And... McLaren wants to fight with Ferrari. Mm-hmm. McLaren has always enjoyed fighting with Ferrari. That they are close rivals. They respect each other, but they are close rivals and have been for a very long time. That's um, so the the books that I'm reading right now about the the 2006 and 2007 season is all about the battles between McLaren and Ferrari and the rivalries between them. Do you want to, you know, give a Bloke in the bird bump to the book you're reading? Not right now. Okay. No bump? No, it's a mystery book. I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out when is a good time for us to talk about Spygate. Because as I'm learning more about it and how much is going on, and, and it, it it's kind of eye-opening, and especially around the conduct of Fernando Alonso. Ooh. And so much of what has what we have seen from Fernando modern Fernando we saw back then and people were pissed off about it then and now it's kind of like oh it's just Fernando being Fernando so maybe when we have a lull or a week between races we could do a very special episode possibly I mean I realize we don't do pre-show prep so I'm just trying to do on-air prep now possibly Okay. So, speaking of Renault teammates, see, we went from Fernando Alonso, who, you know, two titles with Renault, and now over at Alpine, which used to be Renault. We go to Cyril Abitbull, who used to be with Renault, and was supposed to be leading Alpine, and then disappeared. He went to an undisclosed location. Well, he left the organization, and, and we still don't know why Cyril left Alpine. You know, he seemed to be lined up to take a fairly plumb job and then all of a sudden that disappeared. 
So he has appeared again. His new role is as the auto, the motorsport advisor to engineering company Mechachrome. So we don't know Mechachrome. It's not a household name for us. However, Mechachrome was and, and still is um, a fairly close partner and development partner for Renault and for Alpine. Okay. So it, it's just interesting. And, and Mechachrome... Um, actually manufactures a significant number of components for uh, the Renault power unit that Alpine uses and also for the engines that are used in Formula 2 and Formula 3. Okay. So it just seems odd that you would go from the head of Alpine to motorsports advisor for Mechachrome. Trying to figure out what's going on there. I don't know. I don't think we're ever going to find out because he's probably going to fade into obscurity. And, you know, I think it's fundamentally because he won't share where the location or style of tattoo that he was supposed to have gotten. Yeah, we haven't heard what's happening with that. I don't think he's actually done it yet. I maybe think that's that he, why he quit. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe he didn't have he didn't have it to face Ricardo that he wasn't going to get the tattoo. And our last story, this week, this past week, Mercedes announced their newest driver. Okay, this is like one of those clickbait headlines because you're wrong. Well, no. Mercedes actually, they put him into Mercedes coveralls and the Mercedes PR group, the F1 team, you know, talked about how great he looked in, in, in... the Mercedes coveralls and the Mercedes black, and that they were thrilled to welcome him to the team. So Roman Grosjean has been announced that he will be driving through a full-day test at Paul Ricard, the 2019 Mercedes championship-winning car. And, of course, this is making good on the promise that if nobody else would give Roman a final drive in F1 after his crash, that Mercedes would do it. That was from Toto Wolff. Now, what we don't know, because this is Roman Grosjean, and he has a history, what we don't know is whether or not Mercedes is turning the engine down and they're going to leave it in like valet mode. (laughs) So here's the thing. Maybe this is the top secret rumor that... Valtteri is either going to have to step up or they're going to replace Valtteri with Roman. Because he's... That I don't think will happen. No? No. No. I think it would be more likely if they were going to pull something, pull a stunt with Roman, it would be that they would bring George up to Mercedes and send Roman to Williams. And boot Valtteri completely out of Formula One? If they were going to do that. I can't imagine that. Yeah. At the very least, it's probably going to be the most interesting thing to have ever happened on Paul Ricard. He stole my line. And on that yeah. note... Well, you know, before you close, because... One, and, and we do have to actually point this out. So we, we open with Turkey and some of the concerns there and trying to figure out what's happening. One of the potential solutions, and I am hoping it doesn't happen, but one of the potential solutions that has been floated is that if Turkey can't happen, 
that they do a second race at Paul Ricard. Oh, no. Maybe they'll move the bollards around and it's a different track. What, it'll be a straight line now? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, Paul Ricard's a testing track. It's supposed to have a hundred different configurations. Maybe they could find one that's interesting. (laughs) See, that's what they'll do. Race number two at Paul Ricard, it won't have a set layout. <laughs> Every three with... laps, they're going to go and reorient it while the cars are on the track. Oh. They won't respect track limits. <laughs> and on that note, we'll call it a show. We are so glad you came. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye-bye. Remember, please discard all candy wrappers and popcorn containers in the nearest trash receptacle. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Bye. (laughs) Okay. Are they all gone? Is is everybody gone? (laughs) Huh? Good. Oh my gosh, my cheeks are killing me. I can't keep smiling like this anymore. I am exhausted. I think I need a break. A little break? Okay. <laughs>